Now we come to chapter 6, and our subject here is a king who could not sleep at night. This king here had a very restless night indeed. And we want to look at this now. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to be brought the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, this seems to be a trifle. doesn't seem to be very important indeed, but this is a sleepless night for the king, and I'm of the opinion he'd had many of them. And the ruler in that day, and I'm of the opinion that there are many of them today, as Shakespeare put it, heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. And he probably felt like his life was in jeopardy most of the time. But that night he couldn't sleep, and he couldn't get back to sleep after he waked up. And so he called for the chronicles to be read to him. That is, the minutes of the kingdom, the log, that would give you the day-by-day happenings in the kingdom. Now, I'm of the opinion that they were extremely boring indeed, sort of like the minutes of board meetings of church. By the way, I've always felt that that expression, a meeting of the board, is about right, because there's nothing as boring as a board meeting. I tell you, I went through years of that. They start in, the chairman calls the meeting to order, and we have a little season of prayer, and you hear the same prayers you've heard for years, and nothing creative, nothing new. And then after that, we have the reading of the minutes, It's bad enough to go to the meeting, and you'd like to forget it, but you've got to have the thing read last month's meeting, and that's very boring. Minutes could put you to sleep. I could see that. And in view of the fact that the king couldn't call for an aspirin tablet, why he calls now for these minutes. And I don't think the reading of these would go very long till he dropped off to sleep, because I'm sure they were rather boring. But this time... The man who read, the secretary, I guess, one of his servants that was in the habit of reading to him, and I'm sure he had a sing-song voice that was inclined to put you to sleep, why, he just happened to turn to a certain place. Did I say happened to turn to a certain place? No, you see that little things now are beginning to pile up, and they reveal that God's hand is in the glove of human circumstance. He's moving it. And we see the overruling and overriding providence of God here. Now, it wasn't an accident that this girl Esther became queen. That's obvious now. And it's no accident that she found favor in his sight. It's no accident that she is now gone in and her request has been granted, that is, for him to come to a banquet. But the night before, he's not able to sleep. So they bring the chronicles in. The secretary turns to a certain place, not by accident. God, by his providence, is overruling. Now, notice what happened. The king, I think, sat up because this was something that he'd forgotten about, and he asks a question. Now, let me read verse 2 of chapter 6 of Esther. It was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants who minister unto him, There has nothing been done for him. The secretary looked back on the back page, and he looked at another page. He said, well, there's nothing here. And the king recognized that this man had done him a real service, this man Mordecai, and he wants him rewarded now. Now, while all of this is going on in the palace, why, there's a knock outside. And the king said, who is in the court? There was noise out there, someone coming in. Now, Haman was coming to the outer court of the king's house. You see, he wants to get this man Mordecai slain. 
And he's up early, too. He had trouble sleeping that night. Two things are on his mind. He wants to eliminate Mordecai now, and he also wants to attend the banquet that Esther's putting on. And these two things are inclined to keep you awake at night. And so he hadn't slept much, and he's there early in the morning. And he'd come in order to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he'd prepared for him. Now we see two circumstances brought together, not by accident, but by the providence of God. Here it was read in the minutes that this man, Mordecai, had bestowed a great favor upon the king, and he hadn't been rewarded. The king's going to see to it that he's rewarded. But also, in the background, there's something else. Haman wants him killed, and he's in to request that Mordecai be put to death. So you're going to have conflict here. Now notice what happens. Haman had access, easy access to the king, and so they let him in, And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. This man had easy access to the king, by the way. He's his prime minister. And it was obvious that he had something important on his mind. At least he thought it was. So Haman came in. Now, before Haman can even get to his request, the king begins to talk. After all, he had the first word. And the king said unto him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now, he just asked Haman for his advice. Now, he says, If there's a man in the kingdom, and there's one that I'd delight to honor, what do you think ought to be done for him? And, of course, the king has in mind Mordecai, but Haman has somebody else in mind. Now, Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? He's thinking of himself. And he recognizes that he occupies this very wonderful position. And so he thinks, well, now what the king wants to do really is to honor me with something special. And I've been invited to dinner. So notice what he says. Verse 7, Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king is accustomed to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city." and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Now, what do you suppose that he had in mind at this particular point? Well, Haman actually was plotting to get the throne of the Media persian Empire, and he intended to usurp the throne. And I suppose that he intended to destroy the king also. He's a bloodthirsty individual, by the way. And so, what he's asking, he thinks he'll be the one that will be honored. Therefore, let the crown be put on the head of this man, the royal apparel put on him, and the horse the king rides. In other words, let the people get accustomed to the man that the king wants to honor. Let the people get accustomed to see him riding through the streets as a king. In other words, he's revealing his hand here in a very subtle way, however, but it's his intention, obviously now, to try to overthrow the king. Apparently, I think that Ahasuerus saw the plot now that's in Haman's mind. Verse 10, Then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew, who sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Now, you could never have asked anything of this man, Haman, to do that 
to him would have been more displeasing, more ignominious, more distasteful, more hateful than to have to put the royal garments and the royal crown on Mordecai and put him on the horse of the king and lead him through the streets and make the announcement that this is the man that the king delights to honor. Well, this man Haman is really a miserable individual. And apparently the king, Xerxes, begins to see that there's a plot here on the part of this man. But, of course, he does nothing about it because we are told here, "...then took Haman the apparel and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, and brought him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delighteth to honor." And instead of doing this for Mordecai, he intended to hang him on the gallows. Now, and Mordecai came again to the king's gate. But Haman hastened to his house mourning and having his head covered. My, this was humiliation to him. And now notice what happens. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had befallen him then said his wise men, and Zeresh his wife unto him, If Mordecai is of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. She was a nice little wife, was she not? She's the one suggested that the gallows be built. Now she's saying to him, I told you so, you're beginning to fall. And she has no word of comfort for him at all. Now, verse 14, And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hastened to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther prepared. He's going to be late for the dinner that he'd been looking forward to. And the events now are happening so thick and so fast that he can't keep up with him. Things are beginning to happen to his disadvantage. And it is as it were, he has no control over them. And by the way, he doesn't have any control over them. You know why? Because at that very moment, God is overruling all of this. And God is seeing to it that his plot does not succeed. Now we come to chapter 7. And I have labeled chapter 7, the man who came to dinner but died on the gallows. And I want to tell you, he got a necktie party at the end of the dinner, and a kind of a party he wasn't looking for by any means. But he goes to this dinner now with mingled feelings. He's thrilled that the queen has invited him. But the way things have worked out, that he's had to honor this man Mordecai. And I'm of the opinion at this moment he doesn't quite understand why that he is being honored. That is why Mordecai was being honored and why he was bypassed. But anyway, he's now going to the dinner. Chapter 7, verse 1. The man who came to dinner but died on the gallows. And he didn't die of indigestion, by the way. He's going to be hanged. Now notice what happens. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther, the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Now, the very interesting thing here is that this queen again is nervous. I think that she was nervous and probably rightly so. What in the world can she do now when these two men are present? There's been a decree against her people. It would touch her. Now, how is she going to approach her request? Because she apparently was not aware of what had taken place, that Mordecai had been honored. All she knows is that both men have come and I imagine both of them are in a rather state of excitement. 
because of the events that have taken place, which she's totally unaware of. But this man now, the king, he renews his overture to the queen. He says to her, Queen Esther, you feel very comfortable now, and do not hesitate to make any request that you want to make of me. I will give you up to half of the kingdom. And that meant she'd have all of it, because, see, she's the queen, half of it's hers. So he's just turning the whole thing over to her, and he's saying to her, you just ask what you want to, Queen Esther, and it'll be yours. Now, verse 3, Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Now she said, My request and my petition is this. I want you to spare my life and my people. Well, the king must have been alarmed. And if he was alarmed, well, this man Haman, it was a three alarm for him. He never knew that the queen was a member of the nation Israel, that she was an Israelite. And you can be sure of one thing, that he's rather excited about what's taking place. Now, she says here, "...for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish." Now, if we'd been sold for male and female slaves, I had helped my tongue although the enemy could not compensate for the king's damage. Now, she said, if we'd been sold into slavery, I would have kept quiet, although it would have been to the disadvantage of the king that it happened. But I would have kept quiet. But we've actually been betrayed, and we're to be destroyed as a people. And so the thing that has happened now, why the king... He's absolutely amazed. Who is it that would dare attempt to destroy the queen? And who would dare to attempt to destroy her people? And she says here something that I want to tell you was as shocking a statement as these two men ever expected to hear. We've been sold. My people have been sold to be destroyed and to be slain and to perish, and I'm included among them. We're going to be slain, not just sold into slavery. Now notice what happens. Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume in his heart to do so? Now, this man Xerxes had never taken the trouble to inquire about who the people were that Haman wanted to destroy. And at this moment, he hasn't put two and two together. He does not really know who's attempting to destroy her people and to destroy her. He just can't believe that there'd be anybody that would attempt such a thing like this. It's just unheard of. And this man just hadn't inquired because human life to him was cheap. The fact that Thousands and thousands of men had perished in that campaign against Europe, had not disturbed him at all. He's actually asking a question that he doesn't have the answer for. Who is he and where is he would presume to do so in his heart? Who would dare do this? And I'm of the opinion that at this moment it hasn't dawned on Haman fully what has really taken place. He did not know when he got that decree through to slay the nation Israel that Esther was the queen and that she was a Jewish. He did not know that. He was totally unaware of this. You see now that God has been moving back of the scenes. Standeth God in the shadows, keeping watch over his own. He's made it very clear, the Lord has, that no weapon... That was formed against them. And after all, God has already said, I'll bless them that bless thee, and I'll curse them that curseth thee. 
Now, if you wanted to go down through history, you would find something that would be quite interesting indeed. And I haven't taken the time here to go into that at all. Probably I should have. But I haven't attempted to take the nations of the world that have practiced anti-Semitism and to take a good look at them and see what happened to them. During the Spanish Inquisition, actually, Spain was the great nation of the world at that time. This country, this Western Hemisphere, was discovered by a man by the name of Columbus. He was an Italian, but he was sailing under a Spanish flag. And he landed down in some of the islands in the West Indies, and he put up the Spanish flag. He claimed it for the Queen of Spain. Now, Spain was the great nation at that particular time. But what happened? Well, at the time of the Spanish Armada that was anchored off the coast of England, actually ready to destroy Great Britain. But a storm came up and destroyed that fleet. Then again, you have the hand of God, my friend, that's moving. And the hand of God has been moving, I tell you, down through the history of this world. And Spain became a second-rate, even a third-rate nation. Why? God just makes good. And he was moving actually by his providence. And God moves that way. And so here God's moving definitely in this scene now. And so the king asks this question, who would presume to do such a thing? Esther said, this is verse 6, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. He had no answer for that. He's dumbfounded to find out that Esther is a Jewish. He just didn't dream that could be true. And he had a decree to have him put to death, and here's the queen, and she's begged for a life. Well, the king is puzzled. In fact, the matter is, he's got to think this thing through, because this man Haman was his trusted advisor. He was his prime minister. Now, notice what happens. And the king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden. Why did he do that? He went in there to think this thing through. He said, I've got to get this thing straight in my mind. Why, I can't believe that Haman would do such a thing as this. But apparently he's done it. He believed his queen. And here's my queen pleading and begging for her life before me. And because of Haman, well, he has to cool off just a little and think the thing through. And the king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, he went into the palace garden. Now he wants to think clearly about it. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther. And this man, who was so glib in asking that others be put to death, he now becomes just like a slave. He grovels at the feet of the queen. In fact, of the matter is, he's mad. This man is mad with fear. For what does he do? Haman stood up to make requests for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw there was evil determined against him by the king. He saw that the king wasn't going to let this thing pass. He was going to do something. And what does this man Haman do? Well, he gets down on his knees to plead for his life in a craven way. And he begins to paw at the queen. She was reclining, you see, on the couch there. That's the way they ate in that day. And all of them had been reclining. And now this man, he begins now to paw at the queen. He's mad. He doesn't really know what he's doing. Now, notice verse 8. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the couch where Esther was. He's begging for his life, and she's afraid of him. You can be sure of that. And when the king sees that, then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? What in the world is this man trying to do? There, just pawing at my queen. 
And you just didn't do that, friends. He's mad. This man, Haman, is just mad at this time. He's lost his mind. As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You see, there were these eunuchs standing around. They haven't moved. The queen hasn't called for any help yet. She's frightened. And she's filled with where when the king comes in and sees that, he doesn't have to say anything than what he does say. Why, he says, what is this man thinking of? These eunuchs, great big fellows, they step up and they take this man, Haman. And now he's being arrested. What's going to happen to him? Well, we read verse 9. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains in attendance upon the king, said, Behold also the gallus, fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then said the king, Hang him on it. You see, God says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Always happens that way. Jacob, if he were here, would tell us that that's what happened to him. Even Paul the Apostle, he had given the word at the stoning of Stephen. And when he's way up yonder in the Galatian country, they lead him out of town and stone him and leave him for dead because he was dead. Why? Because you just can't mock God. God's not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, friend, I don't care what it is, you'll reap. And then there is a law of God that operates. Notice what happened. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Let me read now in Psalm 37, verses 35 and 36. Listen to the psalmist. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. That's the interesting thing. Little man, you can have your day. You can be a villain if you want to. <laughs> and you can run against God's plan and purpose for you. But you won't defeat God, because you're going to pass off the stage. That's what happened to this man. Now, friends, we come to the eighth chapter today. And actually, the thing we saw last time was a reversal of the circumstances that had taken place. There had gone out a decree that the nation Israel is to be destroyed. And so this man Haman, who'd made this law that the Israelites were to be slain on a certain day, and now Haman is slain. On the very gallows he built to hang Mordecai, he's hanged. But friends, that decree hasn't been changed at all. The nation Israel is still to be slain on a certain day. That's part of the law of the Medes and Persians. And very candidly, it can't be changed. There's just no way of changing it at all. And that is something that we need to recognize here. And so there really is a problem, a real problem, that presents itself here. And how is it going to be solved? Well, let's look now at chapter 8, verse 1. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen... And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. Now, for the first time, she has let it be known that he was her stepfather, that this very man that wouldn't bow to Haman, and that the decree was made against him at the very beginning, was actually her stepfather, and one who had raised her. Now the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. It seems to me that king is very free with the use of his ring that is so important because that ring pushed down into wax can make a law that would destroy a people. And he passed it to Haman. Now he passes it to Mordecai. Well, I feel like it's in good hands now. Well, he certainly seems to be careless in this. Now, verse 3. And Esther spoke yet again before the king, 
and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. Now, you see, nothing has been done to change this. In fact, it can't be changed, and it won't be changed. And we need to recognize that here at this particular juncture, you just can't change this decree. And it won't be changed in any shape, form. And even the king couldn't change the law. We've seen that before in reference to Vashti's first queen. But now the thing the king can do is to send out another letter. And another decree can be made. And the nation Israel can take advantage of the new decree if they believe it. And they can accept this means of salvation that the king has provided for them. Now, will you note here, it says, "...and the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and the thing seemed right before the king, and I'd be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that should come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, the whole thing is that unless something is done, why, the judgment against Haman is of no avail. Something must be done to save these people. Now, will you listen to this carefully? Then the king, Hahaziris, said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Now, that's good so far, but that does not spare the nation Israel at all. Now, listen to him. Write ye also concerning the Jews, as it pleaseth you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribe called at that time in the third month, that is, the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day of it. It was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the deputies, to the governors and princes of the provinces which are from India unto Ethiopia, 127 provinces under every province according to its writing, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language." And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's ring, and sent letters by post on horseback, and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, in which the king granted the Jews who were in every city to gather themselves together and to defend their lives, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the property of them for spoil upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. Now, the thing that is interesting about this is that the original decree is not changed, nor is it altered. It cannot be. It stands. But now another decree is made, and this decree is sent out as the first one was. It's come out from the king with his signature, and here we have called our attention again the dramatic side of it and the detailed side of it and the fact that the king now is on the side of the nation Israel. Now, before, it was judgment against these people. Now, he's come over on the side of these people, 
and the weight is over on that side, so that who can lay anything to the charge of the king's elect here? Well, it's the king that justifies. And when he does, there's nobody better raise a hand. Now, this message is to go out, and it's to go out in 127 provinces. Now, again, in the capital city, there was a great deal of business connected with the government then. I don't think it would be as extensive as Washington, D.C. is today. And believe me, they've got a lot of government buildings there. But here, there would be quite a few buildings. And there were a whole company of people that's working for the government. Now, I know I'll get a letter from a few folk will say that there's some question about you folk with a Texas accent, but I think you understand me. And therefore, I want to add that this was a real problem. Every province had a different language. And in each provinces, there were many tribes. So it was a polyglot people. So they had to have in the capital, if they wanted to get a message through to a certain province and to a certain people, they had to have scribes there that were from that area who spoke the language, who understood it, who could translate out of the Persian, or whatever they were speaking then, I think it was Persian, over into the language of these different tribes. Now, that was a great undertaking. And these scribes are called in again, as they were at first. And each scribe makes a copy of this decree that's gone out from the king. And now the king is on the side of these people that before a decree had gone out of judgment against them. And the people are told now they can be reconciled. And they can believe the king now. And they can be saved. That was the message. Now, here again, when the copies are made, they are given to these messengers, and you will see them come out of these buildings because the dromedaries, the camels, the mules, and the runners also, the animals were tethered there. And all these messengers come out. They mount the camels, they mount the mules, and they start out. They got another message. And this message now is going out through all the kingdoms out to the very end of the kingdom. And the Jew can believe it. And the people can believe it. And it's a good news. It's real good news. Now, I'm sure that you see that this is probably one of the most wonderful pictures of our salvation that we have in the Scripture. And it's not used very much today. You see, God gives us these pictures. God teaches us that way, you see. All of these things happened unto them for examples unto us. And this is a real picture. Now, there's come out from God as we've seen a decree. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And you just can't point to certain people down on Skid Row or some criminals and say, well, they are the ones. No, he's talking about you. Because the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one, for the righteousness of man is filthy rags in his sight. And God cannot save us today by perfection, because we can't offer it. And God can't save us by imperfection, because he can't lower his standard. So the decrees come out from God. But now that same throne that sent out this decree to mankind letting him know we belong to a lost race. And that's the predicament of humanity today. That's the predicament of mankind. That's the problem today with the human family. We like to think that the problem is here or there or somewhere else, and it's either in Washington or with the church or with the family, or it's with this individual or that political party, or it's this nation over yonder, the communists. My friend, the problem is right in your own heart. Out of the heart proceed all of these evil things. And they come out of your heart, my heart. I tell you, this world is polluted today. Just not the rivers and the air, but the human heart is a polluted thing. Now, God has to judge. 
But that same throne that sent out the judgment to all the world, that all are lost, and that's not a very pleasant thing. In fact, the matter is, a lot of people don't like to hear that. And so many churches today, they become liberal. I'm of the opinion that liberalism is based on weakness. And the weakness is that the man in the pulpit doesn't have the courage to stand up and tell folk they're sinners and need a Savior. Men like to be flattered today. I had an army officer way out yonder in Okinawa, and I thought what a poor representative he was of this country. He tried to get us taken off the air when I was teaching Romans out there. He says the idea of telling people that we're sinners, you give the impression that America is a nation of sinners. And you know something? That was the impression I was trying to give. But I was trying to tell that brass hat out there. I don't know whether there's anything in it, but I was trying to tell that brass hat out there that he's that kind of a fellow, and he needed a Savior, you see. But people don't like to hear that. But thank God there's gone out another decree, and it's come out from the throne of God. And that decree is, "...be ye reconciled to God." And we're ambassadors in this world today. An ambassador in a country means that the country he represents and the potentate he represents still friendly. And our God today is friendly. You don't have to do anything to reconcile God. He's already done it for you. Christ died for you. Now, what can you add to what Christ has done? I have an evangelist friend. He's a wonderful friend. He always tries to get people to cry. And a lot of people like to cry. So, He and the people have a lot of fun as he goes along. And he thinks that they have to shed tears and that must be repentance. And I kid him all the time. I say, how many tears do you have to shed to soften God's heart? And we argue about that. He says, you're just being absurd. I say, I'm not absurd because I don't think you have to shed tears. God's heart's already soft. You can't do anything to soften God's heart. Jesus did that for us. And now we can say, if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, nobody. He's on our side, friend. He's on your side. The decrees come out today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You can believe him, and if you believe him, you're saved. And that's what these people had. All they had to do is believe that the decree from the king, now he's on their side. He's going to protect them. And that overcomes the other. Now, you see, when God saves today, he's saving sinners. He has a way to save sinners. You're not good enough to go to heaven. You and I never would be good enough. Therefore, he's got to work us over. We have to come and accept a salvation that gives us a robe of righteousness that's perfect. And it's Christ. We're in Christ. And when you're in Christ, you never improve on that. Because he's wonderful. He's the Savior. He died for us. Now, when you come to him and accept him and receive him as your Savior, he's going to work us over. Because he's not going to take us to heaven like we're going to be born again. Our Lord said that to that religious ruler. Ye must be born again. And Peter says, born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, of the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. That's the reason we give out the word of God. And that's the reason people are being born again today. Lives being changed. I don't talk to people about committing your life to God as if you've got something to commit. Do you think he wants your old life, my friend? He wants to give you a new one. He wants to regenerate you, wants to save you. You know, there's a lot of easy believism today. You just ignore the fact you're a sinner and you can come to Jesus And there are a lot of people been padding it down front in all kinds of meetings and churches and evangelistic campaigns today, and they're still not born again. You know what you need? You have to come to him as a sinner. These people had to recognize the decree had been made there to be destroyed. They had to believe it. They had to believe now that the king's on their side and the king's on our side. We're ambassadors. On the behalf of God, therefore we say to you, be ye reconciled to God. 
He's reconciled to you. So the decree goes out. Now let me read verse 14 here. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. Now the only one time there's need for haste, that's in reference to salvation. Today, if you'll hear his voice, and right now there are folk listening to this program, and I'm not trying to frighten anyone, but this is going to be the last time you will ever have an opportunity to accept Christ. And so he says, today, if you'll hear his voice, now is the accepted time. That's the only time God wants you to get in a hurry, friends, and that's to be in a hurry to get saved. Now, verse 15, And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, a blue and white, and with a great crown of gold. That is different than the sackcloth and ashes he had on, you see. And he had on fine linen and purple in the city of Shushan, rejoiced and was glad. You know, it's wonderful to be saved. That's the only thing that can bring joy to your life, friends, is to get saved. Now, you can go to a nightclub, and they tell me now you can spend $100 one night in a nightclub, and I'll grant you that you can have a good time. That is, if you're an unsaved person, you'll have a good time. Because you can get drunk, and you can see the show, and you can eat like a glutton, and you'll have a good time. But I want to tell you, the next morning, you won't have a good time. You're going to feel bad. And in it all, you'll never know what real joy is. But if you come to Christ, you'll find out what real joy is. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. That's what God offers you today, light. Jesus is the light of the world in gladness and joy and honor. That's the thing that gives dignity to sinners, is to go to a Savior who's God manifest in the flesh who died for us. That'll lift you out of the muck and the mire. That'll enable you to walk with your head erect through this world and rejoice today. My, we need to rejoice are you happy today, Christian friend? I should say, are you joyful today? You have real joy down deep in your heart? Well, we used to sing that little chorus, and I've seen some pretty sad sacks singing that, by the way. He wants it to be real. Now, we read in verse 17, the last verse of the chapter, "...and in every province and in every city..." wherever the king's commandment and his decree came. Apparently, it didn't get through to some places. That was sad, because, may I say, I have a notion, it's the reason I said at the beginning, I'm of the opinion that probably a million Jews could have been killed at that time, because you must remember their method of communications, not like it is today, can't put it on the radio. Don't you thank God for radio that you can get the word out? I thank God for it every day. Now we come here to the last study in the book of Esther. We saw that God, by his providence, had so overruled that when a decree went out for his people to be exterminated, that God was overruling and was moving a girl and her stepfather, by his providence, they were out of his will. But he was moving, because he's going to accomplish his purpose. And standeth God in the shadows, keeping watch over his own. So when that moment came, God had her on the throne, so she could step in at that time. And there was no man to stand in the gap. Well, there wasn't a man here to stand in the gap, but there was a woman Queen Esther, thank God for her. And she doesn't look very good the way she's presented at the beginning. And when I say good, I don't mean that she wasn't beautiful, because she was. She won the first great world beauty contest. She was Miss Universe. Back when they didn't have a Miss Universe, she becomes queen of one of the great world kingdoms. In fact, the second great world kingdom. And so this girl is there at the proper time, 
And Mordecai was right. Who knows but what she'd come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she had. Why? Because of God's providence. God was overruling. And now a decree went out that these people can believe the king. And when they believed the king, why, there was salvation for them. And Queen Esther was the one that had the scepter of grace extended to her. We have a wonderful Savior today. And today the throne of God is not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. God doesn't want to hurt you. He's got his arms outstretched to a lost world. And God is not wanting to hit anybody over the head. God is saying, come. But you'll have to come my way. You'll have to believe me. There's no salvation apart from that. But suppose some Israelite said, well, I don't believe that decree that's come out from the king. I don't think he could be that good. I don't think that he'd do that. I'm going to protect myself. And I'm just going to make me a little Maginot line, and I'll hide back of it, and I'll make me a fortress, and I'll defend myself. And my friend, it was death for him, because he should have believed the decree that came out. And the decrees come out from God. And that decree that's come out from God today is, "...believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And there's none other name under heaven given among men." whereby we must be saved. This is the decree that's come out today from a wonderful God, and it's come out actually to a lost world. And what a wonderful decree it is. Now, will you notice they had to have faith in this new message. And fact today is this new message that's come out from God. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that men and women are saved by faith and not by the works of the law. And to as many as would receive him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than just believe on him. Be it known unto you, Peter says, that through this man is preached remission of sins. Now, that was the message that's come out to us today. Now, the fact of the matter is that these people, if they didn't believe it, there was no hope for them at all. Now, today, you may break some bad habits. You may forsake evil. You may go to church. You may be baptized. You can take part in the Lord's Supper, and you can still be miserable. The only way in the world, friends, is to come to the message that is God's Word and believe it. And when you believe it, there's salvation. Now, these people, they had joy, we were told. Why? They just believed that message that had come out. And so what takes place is this wonderful time of deliverance. Now, this is the setting up of this great feast that is known as the Feast of Purim. We know very little about it, to tell the truth. It's not mentioned in the New Testament at all. Actually, there's no reference to it at all. And it is a feast that the Jews celebrate today. They attach as much importance to it as they do the Passover. They today recognize that this speaks of a great deliverance for them. And a feast day was instituted for them. It's called the Feast of Purim. And it comes from the Persian word pur, which means lot. And as the Scripture says in Proverbs 16:33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. You see, it was on this day when the lot was cast that these people were delivered. Was that by chance? Oh, no. That was by the providence of God. God overruling. Now, I'm not going to read a great deal of the detail that is here. Let me begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 9 of Esther. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution 
in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king, Ahasuerus, to lay hand on such as sought their harm, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. Now, actually, the statement was made by Herodotus that after Ahasuerus returned from his campaign against Greece, that his wife at that time, her name was Amestria, and she was a cruel, vindictive queen. Now, Amestra, of course, is Esther. And you can understand how the world outside, or at least the Greeks, got the impression that she was a cruel, vindictive queen because of the fact that she stepped in now and has been able to save her people and got rid of Haman and all the others that were the enemies at that particular time. And I suppose that a great many folk felt that the court that tried the henchmen of Hitler and that many of them, as you know, were put for life in a concentration camp as they had treated the Jews. And at that time, and still today, a great many people think that it's maybe a little brutal and cruel to put these men in prison, that now that they ought to be let out of prison and all that sort of thing. And you can see the word could get around to those that were not in on the know that they were very brutal and cruel to treat these men like that. Well, these men were rascals of the first water. And they probably got exactly what was coming to them. They certainly got justice. Now, that was true in that day, of course. But you can understand how the Word got around in that day. Now, at this feast, we are told here, and I will continue to read several verses here and then drop down in this chapter. We're told that the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, to lay hand on such as sought their harm. In other words, they just defended themselves. And no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. And all the princes of the provinces and the deputies and the governors and the officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. In other words, the very throne that had condemned them now protects them. And the very throne of God protects us today. And that's what Paul meant in the 8th of Romans when he says, "...who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect?" It's God that justifies. Well, how does God justify? Well, who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. That's one thing. Number two, yea, he's risen again. Three, he's even at the right hand of God. Four, he also maketh intercession for us. Now, that's the reason today no one can condemn. Christ died for us. He rose again. He ascended to the right hand of God, and he makes intercession for us today. How wonderful this is. Now, Mordecai was there by the side of the king now, not Haman anymore, who would have put him to death, but one of their own. And today, there's a man in the glory. He knows exactly how you feel. He knows how I feel. And he's there for you and for me today. How wonderful it is to know we've got somebody up there for us. See, things have changed for us sinners. Now, let me read on here. And I read verse 4. Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame went out through all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, grew greater and greater. And I have a Savior today. He's despised in this world. In fact, the matter is, they're saying a lot of dirty, blasphemous things about him today. But my friends, he is the man in the glory. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He is the lily of the valley. He's the one altogether lovely. He's the chiefest among 10,000. 
and someday's coming, and we ought to get in practice of bending our knees to him and adoring him and praising him. It's very important. He ought to become sweeter every day. There used to be a hymn we'd sing. They don't sing it much anymore, at least I don't hear it. Sweeter as the days go by. <laughs> That's the way it ought to be for you. Do you today rejoice more as a Christian than you did last year or ten years ago? Oh, I thank God that I'm a happier Christian than I was ten years ago. How wonderful it is. Now, let me drop down all the way down, friends, to verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king, Ahasuerus, both near and far. Some folk have written in and asked, who wrote the book of Esther? Well, I said that at the end of the book we'd get at least a suggestion. Here it is. I think Mordecai wrote the book. Verse 26, "...wherefore they call these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, for all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so that it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing." and according to their appointed time every year. And they, by the way, have celebrated the Feast of Purim. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And that these days of Purim should not fall into disuse among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Then Esther the queen the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. And again, I ask the question, did Mordecai write the book? I think he did. Verse 31 now, to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed, according as Mordecai, the Jew, and Esther, the queen had adjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed in the matters of the fastings and their lamentation. Drop down now to chapter 10, verse 3, the last verse. For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the welfare of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. We have a Savior that's going to bring peace one day to this world. Now, will you notice something here? There are three prayers that they pray at the time of the Feast of Purim. They thank Jehovah that they're counted worthy. The second prayer for preserving their ancestors. And third, that they've lived to enjoy another festival. And we today as Christians say we see in it the providence of God. In the Passover feast, to us there is a spiritual meaning. Christ, our Passover, is offered for us. We have the salvation of God for us. In the feast of Purim, we have the keeping power of God, his providence, the sovereignty of God. And Proverbs says in Proverbs 16, verse 33, "...the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord." And he'll keep his nation, Israel. He'll keep his church. And he'll keep the individuals that are his. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God through him. Now, again, I must come back to this. The Christian today only knows of a distant providential oversight. They do not learn to walk with God in close fellowship obeying God's Word. He knows and loves and cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to Him. He wants to lead you, friends, by His eye. You have to be very close to Him. And we need to move in close today. But most of us only know of this distant, providence of God, of how he leads.
woods way out yonder, those that won't be led. How many Christians walking in their own will? Things are going nicely. The sun is shining in the sky. The stones are removed from their pathway. And they just think they can work it out themselves. So they don't look to him. And I could say we don't look to him at a time like that. But then one day the winds begin to howl. The waves begin to roll. The way seems dark. And then we all of a sudden cry out to him, Lord, save me, I'm perishing. (laughs) Show me the way. And then if we get through that crisis, we say, the Lord led me. My friend, only by his providence did he lead us. We were actually not in the will of God. How many Christians that I'm talking to right now, you're really not in the will of God, are you? We hear so much today about dedication of life and heart. I get so weary of hearing that, come dedicate your life to God. Oh, my friend, I'm not asking you to do that. You can do that right now and get down on your knees and dedicate your heart and life. And then tomorrow you can be entirely out of the will of God. And then you begin to move by the providence of God. Oh, he wants to lead you today. He wants to guide you directly. He'll overrule you. I don't care what you do or where you go, and I don't care who you are. You may be a Hitler. You may be a Stalin. You may be a Judas Iscariot, but he overruled Judas Iscariot. He'll overrule you today, friend. I don't care who you are, but you can know the luxury and the joy of coming to him, and not just in one act, but moment by moment. And day by day, seeking the will of God for your life. And you won't have to come down front in some service to do this. You can just begin to walk out from right where you are right now in the will of God. How wonderful it is. What joy it is. He wants to lead you.